other side of midnight with Frank Morano. When the rhythm gets to rocking on a swing side and the cats condescend to lend an ear, when the beatniks start to gather around the ringside, there's a certain thing they always want to hear. 720, 720, what's the tune they like the best? When the jive becomes deluxe, what's the number one request? 720 in the books. The The great Ella Fitzgerald here on the other side of midnight. Uh, This is Frank Morano. Very, very pleased uh, to be joined by Jeffrey Omar Patrick, a a very distinguished gentleman, a a professor or assistant professor at uh, New York Medical College, the School of Medicine. Jeffrey Omar, it's great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank now, you for having me. Now, you are dressed well for radio in the middle of the night or the middle of the morning. I'm, I'm dressed well all the time. I, I don't <laughs> doubt that. I want to paint the picture. And, Kenneth, do not let him leave here without taking a photo of us together. I wish I was better dressed. Had I known you weren't going to be dressed like a schlub like me, I would have worn something. So I want to paint the picture for folks. You're wearing a white-collar um, white collar shirt mm-hmm. with uh, blue and white stripes, which I love. That's my favorite style of shirt. Mm-hmm. A bow tie, yes, and it's it's a red and yellow <laughs> bow tie, right. and that's no clip on, from what I can tell. It is not. You're wearing a vest, right? And you got uh, this tan sports jacket mm-hmm. and a, a really hip looking kind of uh, walking stick there, yeah. Which I that's thought it. was just maybe for fashion, but you apparently actually need it. Don't get a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson learned. Lesson learned. All right. Now, you are an expert in the field of multiculturalism in medicine. Right? Exactly. Now, yeah. and you, you teach multiculturalism exactly. in medicine. Exactly. When people think about medicine, I think a lot of people take the standard approaches. Okay. Someone's sick or someone's injured. They need some sort of treatment to get better. What role does multiculturalism play in that what is multiculturalism in medicine why is that something that should be studied okay so or taught so first thing that you have to realize is that there is a difference between medical care and health care okay so one of the things that really distinguishes those is that we're taking a look at what is needed to enhance people's preventative health care in order for them not to be sick right Mm. So what I teach is the fourth-year medical students at New York Medical College and the School of Medicine, I teach them how to go beyond prognosis and diagnosis in order to treat the entirety of the patient, not just that medical issue that they have. Because remember, if we think about the biopsychosocial model, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure if you're familiar with uh, that. Let's pretend I'm not. <laughs> well, let's say I am, but let's pretend a couple of our listeners are not. Uh, catch us up anyway. Right, so... You know, those those are the units. A culture is also another part of it too. So you have the bio, the psycho, and and then the 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 physical, the biopsychosocial model. This is the three areas that we need to concentrate on really when we're taking care of each patient. You understand? I do. Okay. So um, multiculturalism now is is actually dealing with how we can deal with everyone 
and be as inclusive as we can, especially when we're treating people who are in this particular uh, patient care. So just so folks understand what you do um, as as a professor, you yourself are not a medical doctor, but all of your students generally will be. Okay, so, all right. I think I should tell a quick story. Please. Okay, so I was in my house, I was sitting in my living room, and I said to myself, what is the one thing that I can do where I can help as many people as I possibly can, right? The next day, I get a phone call from a dear colleague of mine, and he says, listen, we need an executive director for the New York State Neurological Society, and we want you to but I didn't have a background in healthcare, So he said, no, 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 you'll be fine. The way that you do things, your work habits, and, and we, we think you'll be ready for being and, exam- and by the way, what were you doing professionally at this point in your life? I was in film. Uh-huh. I was, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I did my undergraduate at Columbia University in film. Gotcha. Right? So I was actually thinking about going back to school to get my master's in film when I asked myself that question. So I get I, I actually become a finalist for this position, this executive position, executive director position. But um the position actually went to somebody who was more qualified. But then it dawned on me like maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So I decided to apply to the master's program at New York Medical College. Now, while I'm in New York Medical College, I'm thinking about, you know, people with traumatic brain injury and Mm -hmm. how they have to navigate the healthcare. And I'm thinking that's what I'm really going to do. But then when I went in and I started to notice the disparities in healthcare, not only for African-American, but for everyone. You understand? And it was just it was just so troublesome. So I started to read everything I could about multiculturalism, uh, cultural structural humility, uh, any cultural competency, anything I could get my hand on, on anything that has to do with multiculturalism, right? Now, we had uh, a grand round event at uh, New York Medical College at Westchester Medical, and at this grand round, it was on implicit bias. And I happened to be a very, I would say, active participant in the crowd. And at the end of that uh, grand rounds, the vice chancellor for the School of Medicine came up to me and said, you know, we should have a meeting. And so I went to his office and he asked me if I would revamp the course that they were wishing to teach on Mm -hmm. multiculturalism. And that whole summer was shot for me. I just worked on that and worked on it. I turned it in. He was so enthralled with what I put in that he recommended that I be an instructor of medicine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I actually became an instructor of medicine. I'm now an assistant professor, but this is my road into this area. Well, that's that's terrific. A c- couple of things strike me. One is I had seen the story recently uh, that there is a big shortage of black doctors in this country. Apparently only 57 percent of U.S. doctors are black. And just two weeks ago, I saw this story. Experts are warning that the shortage of black doctors harms public health. Explain to folks why that's the case. Some people may think, okay, a doctor's a doctor. They can all give you a prescription the same way. Why is this a problem? So, listen, there's a bridge 
that needs to be gapped between the patients and the providers. Now, when you think about uh, the cultural aspect of, you know, relatability and how the black, not only black doctors, but black and brown doctors are able to relate more towards this sort of patient. And it's very important because the, the black doctors can provide a more cushiony, we'll use that word, right? They can actually make sure that they're treating the patients who can understand, they'll have the cultural competency, they'll have the relatability, and they're, it, it, it's, it's always good to see one of your own in, in an aspect. You know? And if I'm a patient and I happen to be a black patient, maybe I'm more likely to be candid with a black doctor about a, a particular health issue or a particular behavioral issue than I would uh, a non-black doctor. Because it really comes down to comfortability. You understand? Sure. And we want people to feel as comfortable as they possibly can. And once we're in the the patient-provider relationship, we have to make sure that we're te- we're taking care of the patients at 100% of what needs to be done and not to miss anything outside. That's where the, the biopsychosocial and cultural aspects really come in. And if there are not enough doctors to treat that population, because remember, there there is a thing uh, – that plays a serious role in our society. Racism is real, okay? Racism is something that, well, it's not real, but then it is real, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it is a, a made-up construct. And with that construct now, it says that some people are not getting the, the health care outcome that they should. And then with that in mind, we have to make sure that we have as many people to be treated as there are people to take care of them. So uh, take me through the latter part of that again. So I think everybody would agree that a racism in society exists. So regardless of which group or which person might be racist against which group, that exists. So um, are, are you saying when it comes to health care, the, the racism plays a role? Major. How? How exactly? Okay, so <sighs> racism is a tool or a device made up in our society to actually uh, provide privileges and benefit to one specific group over another, right? And with that in mind, we have to make sure that we stay uh, focused on this difference and what it really is. And if no one is, is paying attention to the three things really that make up racism, and which is discrimination, segregation, and historical trauma, those three things right there. Now, discrimination is the one that's really most, you know. Noticeable. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and then now you have the component of implicit bias. Implicit bias now plays another different role because it actually allows people to, to be racist and not even know that they're being racist. So that is what I'm really concentrating on with 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 what I'm studying at Columbia University. Yeah, you are you are studying. You're doing your uh, dissertation. You're pursuing a a doctorate now. You're doing your dissertation, uh, which re- revolving around finding a cure for discrimination. Right. I, I have to say, and um, obviously you you put the whole situation together very well, and in the context of the healthcare system and what you're doing. But I have a tough time seeing how people are in this day and age, 
racist without knowing that they're being racist. Oh, how does that how does that work? I mean, if if I um, if I see uh, somebody uh, committing a biased crime, for instance, very easy to see uh, that's uh, that's an example of racism. Someone calling someone a name. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an example of racism. Somebody saying, well, uh, blacks aren't as smart as whites. That's why I would never vote for one. That's clearly an example of racism. But how does someone not know they're racist and exhibit racism? Well, there there are. Implicit bias and microaggression. Microaggression is 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 done in such a way that it 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 causes harm, and people do not really know that it's causing harm. For instance, you'll see me, and 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 you're my academic counselor, you're my academic advisor, and it's the first time we're meeting, and you'll say, Jeffrey Omar, are you on academic probation? <laughs> No, I'm not on academic. Why would you even ask me a question like that? You see what I'm saying? I see. I got you. Right. There's the assumption that you would be on academic probation when there's no basis for it. Okay. I got got exactly what you mean. That's that's the microaggression, and that's the thing that we're really moving against with this project that I'm working on. Got it. We're talking with Jeffrey Omar Patrick. He is uh, working on a research dissertation revolving Finding a Cure for Racism. So Discrimination, actually. Well, but, for uh, discrimination, okay. Um, is discrimination something that can be cured in your view? Yes, it can be. Now, there are some people who say that it can't, but I don't think they're they're really looking at the, the grand scheme of it. Because let me tell you something. Everything that has a beginning has an end and a new beginning. So when we take a closer look at discrimination, we're actually looking at the unseen acts, right? The unseen things that are happening that are causing injury. It it doesn't have to be violent. Verbal assault is just as potent as anything else that you can imagine. And and the psychological damage it does really hinders people. It's a roadblock really for certain people because some people might have heard the whole thing about academic probation and that just rattles their whole world Mm -hmm. if they're not as confident as I am. You understand? Sure. So when we're looking at discrimination, we really want to take a closer look at how we train people. Mm -hmm. You understand? Because the training is what's going to really cause people to start looking because it takes more than a commitment to equity, right? It takes more than a commitment. It takes training, and it takes us to really take a closer look to recognize implicit bias in ourselves like, Oh, why did I say that? So when the more you call it out, the more you can actually begin to change what's happening. So uh, obviously I realize there's a whole dissertation worth of work on this, um, and it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into a one-minute answer. But how do we train people, whether it's on a professional level or even at a, a lower academic level, to be part of a discrimination-free interaction? Okay, so – you have to understand the structure that we're in, right? And when it comes to when it comes to a, a topic such as racism, you have to think about the levels, right? You got the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, you have the societal, you have the community, and then you have the whole system. The system is now what we want to really take a look at to see how we can implement the training that we want. Now, what kind of training do we want? 
What I'm working on is I'm working on a facial stimuli program where you go to a training and seeing faces, but then you realizing that that face does not match what your brain is actually calculating mm-hmm. in there. So you can actually start recognizing the implicit bias that you have. And then you can start making an, an effort because without the effort, then there's nothing that's going to, it's going to change. All right. So uh, we make an effort to, we do this face exercise yeah. and um, what else needs to be done in the training process to rid the world of discrimination? Okay. So I've also created a behavior change program. The behavior change program is called be me behavior change reverse mirror protocol, reverse mirror. Reverse mirror is the part where you see me when you see, you see yourself when you see me. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the reverse mirror. We see each other, and then the be me is the brain, energy, be me, and mind, and emotion. Those four components are going to give us another uh, way to really see the behaviors that we need to to utilize in order for us to change the entire system. Because now you do not confront. You don't confront discrimination. You don't confront racism. What you do is you counteract it. And in counteracting it now, it allows you to see where we can fill the holes where. Understood. Okay. Understood. Um, let me ask your take on the next presidential election. There is a presidential candidate that I have to tell you prior to our interaction I'd never heard about by the name of Robbie Wells. Right. Who's Robbie Wells? Well, Robbie Wells has just uh, declared that he's going to run for presidency. And and a lot of people don't really know him unless you're on TikTok, maybe. Or yeah. Somebody. Here is, by the way, one of the a portion of one of the videos that he has uh, put out there on TikTok. I guarantee every American an unconditional basic income of $10,000 a month. There will be no inflation. And even more than that. I guarantee that once we move into the creative society, all debt will be canceled. And of course, there will be no utility bills, no energy bills, and everyone is guaranteed free housing. The creative society is a whole different world built on the value of human life. And because of this, we will quickly fix and resolve all climate issues. I'm the only one who can do it because I have the creative society behind me. Now, I, as I said, I never heard of uh, Robbie Wells before. I think the idea of universal basic income is something a lot of people are familiar right. with because Andrew Yang right. made that a big part right. of his campaign. Right. When we talk about cancellation of debt, uh, when we talk about free housing, when we th- talk about no utility bills, it does sound a little bit uh, too utopian to ever come to fruition. Uh, but um, but who is this person? Tell us tell us what his story is. So, Robbie Wells is actually looking to make a change in America. He wants to do things that I think, which are doable. I really think they're doable, especially if we pay attention to what he's really saying. The human value is what's really the most important thing. Now I call. I saw Robbie Wells on the internet and I called him Mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what is this really all about? And when I called him, he answered the phone, right? He got on the phone. I told him I was a 
doctoral candidate from Columbia University, and I wanted to speak to him about some things. And the things he had to tell me I found very interesting, especially when he talks about making us a more unified country. That's the one thing I think we're really missing. And and it falls in line with exactly what I'm trying to do. Well, it's certainly uh, interesting. So I know just in looking him up in preparation for this, he had sought the Constitution Party's nomination for president uh, back in 2012. That's considered pretty much a more of a conservative party. Then he tried to run as a, uh, a Democrat f- um, back in 2020. This year he's running as a independent. as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, where would you say he fits in on the political spectrum? Left, right, center, or is it difficult to define? Well, I think I think I think he's dead center. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think he's trying to make us see that it's not really Democrat or Republican. We have to start looking elsewhere for what's really important. And 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 the left is too far left and the right is too far left, too far right. So I think that he's really concentrating on what he needs to concentrate on, especially when it comes to the human experience factor. Gotcha. Well, one of the things that we've seen in healthcare is, uh, and I just saw this story last week, is that Medicaid is now going to allow people to um, use Medicaid funds for food, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense because food is medicine and it does play a significant role in your health. Uh, I'm curious if this is something you favor as well and if um, that, if there's a cultural dimension to that as well. Well, so... The idea of using funds for food is never a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're on board with that. And you were just talking about fruits right. not too long ago. So I think that people would appreciate such a move, especially when it comes to taking care of the nutritional value of who they are. I'm 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 for it. Yeah. You think we're going to be hearing a lot more from uh, Robbie Wells uh over the next year or so? I hope so. I hope we can, you know, see exactly where we could get him on the spectrum and see if we can hear what he what he claims he can do. Let's see uh, how he's really going to do it. Yeah, right? it's it's certainly going to be uh, very interesting. I'm going to keep an eye on him now. People just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Jeffrey Omar Patrick. Uh, what's next for you? It's clear you've got your hands full academically. You've got your hands full in terms of uh, moving the ball forward, uh, in terms of uh, getting people to think about conventional ideas in a different way. Clear you've uh, got your your hands full with your students. But you strike me as a person with a, a lot of energy and, and a lot of desire to make change. So w- what else is next for you? Well... I'm thinking about politics myself. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about politics. I'm, I'm not thinking about being the president, uh-huh. but I'm definitely thinking. Lucky for Robbie Wells. <laughs> I'm thinking more on the local level because uh-huh. the people in my community, they need to see individuals like me more frequently. Well, yeah, I think that's great. We, I uh, definitely encourage everybody uh, to be uh, politically active, especially somebody with your um, academic bona fides and your uh, creativity and your approach and zest for life. I want to thank you for coming in studio and thank you for dressing up for the occasion. No problem. You got to come back. Keep us posted, especially if you do take the plunge into politics. <laughs> I will. I will definitely keep you uh, posted. Wonderful. And- 
And thanks to Corey for... Oh, yeah. I want to thank my friend uh, Corey Windelspecht for uh, bringing you to my attention. So we're all the beneficiary yet again of uh, Corey Windelspecht's uh, incredible work. If people want to get in touch with you, is there a good way to do that? Um, Sure. You can... You can email me. That's probably the best sure. way. Well, yeah. if, you, uh, if you're comfortable giving your email, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you can email me at jop2105 at tc.columbia.edu. Okay. It just rolls off your tongue, right? <laughs> give it to me. Give it to folks one more time. jop2105 at tc.columbia.edu. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Omar Patrick. A real treat to have you in. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.